And I just could never solve that problem. At some point, you know, I made friends with like a tennis pro or like the club pro. I'm like, what do you do for this? He looks at me, he's like, that's hard to fix, man. That's hard to fix. Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. All right, Dr. Harmon, we're back for another episode of Medical Dads. Back for another episode of Medical Dads, ready to talk about stage fright <laughs> with no fear or concern in our hearts right now as we, <laughs> as we prepare to put ourselves out there. <laughs> well, the good thing is we've done many episodes, so I've finally gotten over my stage fright of podcasting. <laughs> I mean, I guess stage fright is more intense when you have fear of consequences of not performing well. Uh, which I don't think we've ever worried about when we make these podcasts. I think any listener can tell these guys aren't worried about this not going well at all. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about stage fright and more broadly speaking, performance anxiety, because it appears in many things, not just being on stage. And we thought it would be interesting to discuss it from a parenting perspective and how to help our children and ourselves get over those things that make us a little bit crazy. Yeah, this should be interesting. <laughs> so... Let me tell you a little bit story about the stage in our family. Okay. I, I don't think we've talked about this on the show before, but when my daughter was in junior kindergarten, mm -hmm. she, uh, they were doing like a Christmas performance. So each class would come up and sing like two songs, right? Yeah. And then, you know, the JKs are the first group because they're the youngest kids in the school and then the SKs and so forth. Yeah. So the school had sent out an, a letter to us saying, you know, there's going to be a performance. We're going to do it twice. One time is going to be during the school day and the other time is going to be in the evening, right? And so, you know, at that time, this was pre-COVID, you know, my wife and I are working. We're not going to be able to go to the one during the school day, yeah. right? And we said, don't worry, we're going to come to the one tonight, yeah. right? So even on the way to school, I was driving her to school that morning. I'm like, don't worry, like uh, mommy and daddy are not going to be at the performance in the daytime, but we're going to be there tonight. And she's like, fine. Right. It was no obvious issue. Yeah. Right. Then we go to school and then drop her off. They have her performance. I don't hear anything else about it until like six hours later. My wife messages me. It's like she sat down on the stage. <laughs> she didn't sing at all. I'm like, what? <laughs> my wife then punctuated this with a few. This is a disgrace to our family. <laughs> And I was like, what are you talking about? How are we getting so worked up? So what had actually happened was she gets to school and then for some reason, all the other parents are there, right? Okay. Like all the other, as, as it gets close to the time for the morning performance, more and more parents start showing up. And then my daughter, who's four, starts looking around and sees her parents are not in the house, oh, right? Oh, no. And as she's looking around, she's getting more and more angry, right? <laughs> Until we get to the point where she has to go on the stage. And so the other parents are there. Some of them recorded this for us. Yeah. Her class marches up to the stage and then, and then they begin singing. And after about two bars, uh -huh. my daughter proceeds to sit down cross-legged and just starts glaring into the audience. <laughs> right? Her best friend turns to her and is like, do something. <laughs> right? It's, uh, it's captured on tape. 
right? And then, so we saw this recording afterwards. We're like, what was going on? And then I, the next day I ran into a teacher at the school and the teacher's like, we asked her and she's like, my parents aren't here. So what do I have to sing for? Oh, no way. <laughs> that is awesome. That is the, that's like the ultimate opposite of stage fright, right? <laughs> it is. It is. I don't, I'm not worried about what these people think. I could care less about these people. I, I'm mildly interested in entertaining my parents. Beyond that, screw those other people. <laughs> I know. If, if, that, if it was only so easy to get over stage fright, right? And that was, that was really a one-off. Because after that, she was not always like easy to get on the stage. It took a lot of convincing and cajoling. Yeah. But that one particular thing, I was like, wow, 200 kids in that school. And why does this one have to be my kid? Like my kid's the only one that pulls this stunt. It's never been seen before in the history of the school. And then I saw, I talked to her after. I'm like, we told you on the way to school that we're going to not be there for the daytime one. We're going to be there for the nighttime. I forgot. <laughs> that was it. I forgot. That's it. <laughs> so for the nighttime performance, was it different? Nighttime performance went well. We had to sort of nudge her along, yeah. and then we brought her baby brother. She was much better for that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how those performances in that preschool age, kindergarten age, is such a completely different beast than when they're older and having to get on a stage. Maybe I haven't seen it when they're older yet. <laughs> I mean, at that young age. I don't even know if stage fright is as much of a as much of a thing because mm. at that age they don't have that same ability to think abstractly to really process okay other people are going to watch me and, and if I don't perform well they're going to judge me and and here's what they'll think and here's what they'll say that mm. stuff comes later that's why that's why teenagers who are sort of reaching the peak of the ability to process in that way are the most self-conscious people and right. you have these kids who at 2 or 3 you get the, they have a beautiful singing voice. People come over and at the drop of a hat, you know, oh, Billy, sing that song. And the kids are like, we'll sing their little cute song. Right. And you try that same stunt when they're eight. And it's like, no, no, no I don't, I'm not going <laughs> to sing for people. <laughs> I don't know. I never had that experience. In our family, my daughter was always very reluctant to perform, right? <laughs> she just, I guess that's maybe more a function of shyness, right? She was like some kids, when they meet a stranger, they just kind of clam up. Right. For 30 minutes. Yeah. So she would be that person, right? Yeah. Except evidently in a giant gymnasium with <laughs> hundreds of parents around. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, watching those performances for kids in, in preschool or, or kindergarten, it's so unpredictable what they're going to do. And it's not <laughs> as straightforward as, oh, they were just uh, having stage fright. Uh, sometimes they have no idea why, <laughs> what they're doing. And like they're up there, they're on the stage, they're not... They're not running away or refusing to get on the stage, but everybody's dancing in unison. You look and for some reason, your kid is like not even bothering to lip sync. Uh, <laughs> they're like fidgeting with their dress. They're more concerned about the, the reindeer ears that they're supposed to yes. wear as a prop that are f dropping yes. in their face. And it's, ah, oh, forget the rest of the performance. I'm not going to do anything until I figure out this flopping thing in my face. If, if we take it back a year, the year before in preschool when she got up and her preschool had a very elaborate like end of year performance. Yeah. And, and so I'm there as like first time parent recording the whole thing. Yeah. And then I just see her repeatedly yawning. Like <laughs> we woke her up too early out of bed for this one. She's sitting there with her hands in her pockets, like yawning as the rest of the class sing a song. <laughs> I could, I could think of one of my kids who stands out amongst the other, amongst the other three of going on stage for these things in, in preschool where they would do these performances. And 
you're just like, what, what in her mind is even happening right now? <laughs> Where all the kids are on stage doing some actions and falling things, and she's just completely in her own world, seemingly oblivious to the fact that there even is a performance going on. And she doesn't look scared. She just looks like, like she's completely thinking about something else and doing something else. Well, I got to say, like, for the people out there who don't realize this, Stu is actually pretty good on stage. Like, when we were in medical school, he was one of the most talented comedic performers in our class so he actually strikes me as being a person who does not suffer from stage fright as opposed to me like you know when we had like the medical variety show and people volunteer for roles my role was like collecting tickets like in the balcony area right or selling concessions as far from the stage as you could get you you showed up and you contributed that's that's more than we could say for some people our listeners are probably wondering i i don't understand how would med school help determine who's good on stage and who's not <laughs> how would how would med school help you realize who's who has p- comedic performance <laughs> potential inside them oh medical school is a very comedic thing through and through <laughs> i approach every patient encounter as if it were a comedy performance <laughs> and as long as one of us is laughing then i know it was a successful encounter yes black comedy but comedy nonetheless <laughs> that's right so we will be looking to you for some guidance, though, on account of your resume of performance. Well, yeah, I mean, as we get there, I could talk a little bit about, like, my personal experience with uh, with stage fright and that type of thing. And, mm. it, and it'll tie into a little bit to the context of how preparation makes a difference for stage fright. Mm-hmm. Well, I think... I mean, it's sort of a timely topic and it isn't because this is the time of year that normally you'd be going to like your children's like Christmas concerts, (laughs) right? And or, you know, recitals and things like that. This year being COVID, everyone's stuck at home, right? So we're really, there isn't that much going on in terms of stage stuff right now. Yeah. Which makes it a challenge because it, it is actually something that's important for children to develop, right? And when we start talking about what are children missing out on, while being stuck at home during this virus, this yeah. is actually one of the things like social uh, experiences and especially like performance or being on stage. Those kind of experiences are lacking at this point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think there are people who like, they hate being in front of a crowd in front of an audience so badly that they would retreat into a shell and say, well, what's the point? Right. Okay. Like like some people they hate getting on the stage, and so they've they've taken that view of life of you know why is that even a skill that I need to have you know when, when I'm a when I was a teenager and they were trying to get me to to speak in front of the class I just said no because I don't see how that's going to help me in life, <laughs> uh, but I, I would definitely say that many many jobs many opportunities in life do come with the caveat that you have to be uh, able to at least get in front of a a, a crowd of people and speak without mm-hmm. uh, you know without freaking out so much that you can't get through what you need to say. I would go as far as to say is that if you put together a list of all the things in life that you need to learn, being able to speak well in front of a group of people is extremely high on the list. It is probably more important than knowing your mathematics and knowing, you know, you know, beyond basic literacy. But, you know, it is so important in all realms of your life if you can carry off things confidently in front of groups of people. Yeah, it certainly uh Procuring a business deal uh, will be more likely if you can get in front of a room of even 10 people and pitch an idea without cl- mm-hmm. clamming up and freaking out 
yeah. than if you can do calculus. Right. Well, even if you're at a business meeting within your own office, like within the five or eight people that you work with, yeah. still being able to get up in front of them and deliver something, right? Not to mention being able to do that in front of strangers, right? Yeah. Or, you know, being able to talk to a crowded room of people listening to you give a lecture. Like there's so many examples, but it starts small, but it really affects almost everything. And if you cannot do it, it becomes a really limiting thing as you move up in the world. Yeah, it's, it's really true. Being able to overcome speaking to a large crowd uh, gives you some skills that apply when it's just a group of six people that you're you're having a meeting with or talking with and mm -hmm. you got something you want to say that you know everyone has to listen to and you can't get your ideas out because I'm just too nervous to speak up. And everybody else is speaking and their ideas are getting heard and yours aren't because uh, when it's time to speak up, that feeling of stage fright is coming over you all over again. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about this. How did you get your start in getting comfortable with being on stage because most of us aren't born that way. So, uh, you know, I think this is where say stage fright is real situation specific because I've, I can't recall ever having a time when I had real difficulty or you know, like paralyzing fear, getting up in, in front of people to talk mm -hmm. or getting up in front of people to, to act out a play or something like that. But that's because I already felt confident about doing that thing and probably had some experience when I was a child where I did it and people were so supportive or got such a reaction that I assumed that, you know, that I, I, I'm mm -hmm. okay at doing it and that I'm not nervous. But for me, that's not to say that I'm immune to the actual feeling and experience of stage fright. It just means I don't get it when I have to speak in front of an audience. But mm. as a kid, I took piano lessons, right? We've talked about this in previous, uh, <laughs> previous episodes. And with that came piano recitals. <laughs> and for me, as personally, you know, I can get up there and I can speak and I know that ah, if I say the wrong word or if I forget what I'm going to say next, then I can always just, you know, say something else or, you know, mm. you could talk your way around it. But the piano, in my mind, is so unforgiving. <laughs> if you press the wrong note, there's nothing, you, there's no other note you can press after that that's going to trick people into thinking, oh, I meant to press that other note. <laughs> if you're speaking and you say something, there's several ways you could make it seem as if like, oh, yeah, no, that's what I meant to say. Or you could even just say, oh, what I mean is. But when you're, when you're playing piano, it doesn't happen. And so, uh, yeah, I've had many experiences going to play piano in front of people where I've had to really deal with this idea of like, ah, like when I'm up there, the nerves can actually now make it hard to actually complete the performance. Mm -hmm. And that's where, for me, what I've realized over time is the more, uh, the less confidence I have in what I'm doing, the more likely the overwhelming fear is going to, uh, is going to ruin what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. I mean, I had similar experience as a child, although I was one of those people who was very reluctant, you know, as far as like, even in high school for, to get up on stage and, and give a speech, you know how like, when you get to grade six or seven, they start to have speeches as a thing that you got to do. Yeah. And some people in our class are very comfortable with it. They embraced it. And I was pretty good at school. Like I was good at everything else. But this one thing, I was like, I just want to get a B. If I can just get a B, it's okay grade. And I don't have to perform it again. Because if you get an A, then you have to perform in front of the whole school. Right? You got to get, you got to thread your grade right underneath that bar. <laughs> right? And... You know, and then because of that, like I, I can remember that feeling like, you know, you're going to be speaking third. So then you're the person in front of you speaking and then the person after them is speaking. And the whole time you're like in your own zone, like yeah. nervous as crazy and shaking all over. And then you go up and give a speech and 
I don't know, for some reason, mine was always about sports <laughs> and it would just be just lousy, like kind of stiff and formal <laughs> and, yeah. and terrible in my mind and forgettable. And it took a, for a long, long time for me to get over that. <laughs> you know, I remember you were smarter than I when you were a kid, <laughs> like figuring out that, you know, if I give a good speech, I'll have to do it again. When I was in grade four, we had to give a speech uh, as part of like that public speaking you had to do every year. Everyone had to write a speech and give it. And, uh, you know, being the stellar and committed student I was back then, yeah, I didn't prepare a speech. Uh, and then the day of, it's like time to give the speech. And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay, what am I going to do? And I'll talk about Ghostbusters because that's what I was really into when I was in grade four. <laughs> that's what you're really into now. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And it's actually much easier to give a speech on Ghostbusters now than it was back then because I've, I've had so many opportunities to talk about it. But anyhow, I said, I'll give a speech on Ghostbusters. And I know the topic well, so I'll just go up and talk about Ghostbusters. So I went up and I gave this speech on Ghostbusters that I just made up as I went along. Um, and I'm sure that the teacher knew that I just made that speech up as I was going along. Right. Um, but uh, she selected me and said, okay, yeah, you know, everyone's done these speeches. Here are five speeches that I think were especially good. And so after lunch... <laughs> We're going to hear those five speeches again so I can pick the winner. It's like she knew who the winner was going to be already, and she knew it wasn't going to be Stuart Harmon. She just <laughs> wanted to force me to get up there to do it again, so I'd have to admit to everybody that I made it up as I went along. <laughs> so what happened when you went up the second time? So I spent the whole lunch hour and recess period trying to remember what it was I even said the first time. And I'm like <laughs> trying to write it down. I'm saying to my friends, does this sound familiar? Is, is that what I said? <laughs> then I went up and I, I gave a completely different speech. I think maybe the first paragraph was about the same. Uh, and suffice to say, I was not selected to go up and give my speech in front of the school. Oh, man. It's, it's crazy what we learn from these experiences, though, because this is actually one of those things that if there is, some, you know, we always talk about learning from failure. Yeah. Sometimes actually failing, you know, playing the wrong note on the piano is not a bad thing because it teaches you that, you know, you m will make mistakes and it's not the end of the world no matter what happens right? yeah that is actually one of the things about public speaking is that we get so worried that you know we're gonna make we're gonna make a flub we're gonna make a mistake the world keeps moving regardless of what mistake you make right yeah. and most people are not out there to get you right right so if you can be moderately entertaining right they'll be put up with a few small mistakes and even a major mistake at, at one point near the end of my piano career uh. at our annual recital I just completely froze. Like I was playing a song and you know how you're playing, playing, playing and you get to a note and it goes, Dang, and you're like, oh no, like you've just, it's like you cut the train right in the middle of, <laughs> of between somewhere between the engine room and the caboose. And now the thing is disconnected and you can't find where to start it from, yeah. right? And then you, you go back to a part that you kind of know and you go back to that moment, you get to that moment again, it's like, Dang, Again, like you can't get past it yeah. until someone has to run up and save you and give you the book, right? <laughs> and I'm telling you, at a Chinese piano recital, there's nothing more humiliating <laughs> than getting the book handed to you, right? Because your, your memory doesn't work anymore. I can think of one thing. I can think of two things more humiliating than getting the book handed to you in piano recitals because they both happened to me. <laughs> I must have been in grade six and they had, you know, the school talent show. And so whatever talent you have, you go up, you say you have it, and then they'll let you do it. And uh, yeah, I guess then my confidence way, way outmeasured my skill, <laughs> much as it probably does now as we record these podcodcasts. But I was like, oh yeah, I, I know a piano song because I, I take piano lessons. I'll play this song. 
Um, so yeah, I chose a song, and the song was called Invention Number Eight because you know you have those rural <laughs> conservatory books, and they have all these songs, and there's like Invention Number Five and Invention Number Six. So mine was Invention Number Eight. Uh, when I went to go play it in front of the school, the principal who's introducing everybody first sort of announces to everybody, oh, and Stuart Harbin's going to play, oh, his invention number eight, uh, giving the crowd the impression that it's called invention number eight because I invented it and I've labeled it number eight. I'm like, oh, that's a weird thing for him to say. But anyway, I'll start playing. And of course, with all this confidence uh, and with this lack of skill, I didn't uh, bother to bring my piano book with me because I figured, oh, this is one of the songs I used to play a lot, like... Like a few months ago, so I'm sure I remember it. And did I even have the foresight to say, well, let me practice a few times in the day or two leading up to the... Nope. I don't think I even remembered which day the recital was on. Uh, I just went up to the day of the talent show. It's time to play. So up I go to play a song. And the first two lines, the first two bars of of invention number eight went fine. (laughs) That muscle memory. And then I get halfway through the song. And what comes next? Totally can't remember. And... For me, playing piano, I don't have in my mind a vision of what's on the music, like the notes. I just have my, my hands just remember what they're supposed to do. Right. Halfway through the song, could not remember. Your brain is completely off. It's just, I just play half the song and then it's just silence as I stop and can't remember what to do next. And then the principal is kind of looking at me and I'm thinking like, oh, okay, yeah, let me start it over from the beginning and I'm sure my hands will know what to do. Play it halfway, they play the song again halfway, stu- again, just stop. And these principals look at me like, is this all part of the invention or, or what happens next? And he looks at me. I just look up at him and I like shrug my shoulders. You know, I don't know what happens. And then that's it. I had to do the walk of shame from that piano at the front of the school where it's not just my class. It's all the grades from kindergarten up to grade six at that school. And I just have to walk past all of them and sit back down and be like, yep, don't remember what happens any, next. Was there any jeering? <laughs> Were people throwing tomatoes? Had they had they handed out tomatoes at the beginning and people were saving them for someone, that would have been me. I would have been covered in tomato. No, you know what the worst part would be? Is there's probably like this polite round of applause as you come down from the stage. And it's like, clack, 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 clack. <laughs> or the slow clap. As somebody hopes that it'll catch on and then I'll get a standing ovation for my bravery. <laughs> no, that so didn't said- happen. You said was, there were two things that are worse than that. That's only one. There's another one? Yeah, so what I learned from that is to prepare. Right? That never again did I ever go to play piano in front of a group without practicing. Okay. But, you know, sometimes I prepared and practiced more so than other times. So I was a teenager the second time something happened. And this is when I was still taking piano lessons. And at the end of the year, you do a piano recital for all the parents to come and watch. Right. So the stakes are a bit lower because none of these are my real peers who I hang out with at school and certainly <laughs> as opposed to grade six where all the girls I like are watching me this like nobody I know is watching me just parents the only thing is that me and my brother were taking piano lessons and because we weren't that good because we didn't practice that much uh, we were kind of put in a stream where we were playing piano with a bunch of kids who were way younger than us <laughs> <laughs> so already as it is when they're like okay and the next performer is going to be Stuart Harmon I stand up and I'm like about a foot and a half taller than anybody else who's playing with the exception of my younger brother, who was six inches taller than me. So I go up to the like, piano, and this, this time... Family, this family is producing some winners. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so whatever credit I get for being able to perform on stage when it comes to uh, acting or speaking or whatever is completely undone by how poorly I perform with music. But anyway, 
I go and sit down in front of the piano, and I've practiced this song so much that I don't, in my mind, even know what the notes are. My fingers just know what to do. Once they just get going, my fingers are just going. And I, if I stop to think about it, if I stop to think like what's coming next, then I always panic and uh, like I mess up, right? Like I don't have the ability to play and concentrate on what's coming next at the same time. Um, so sit down, start playing. Things are going well for half of the song, which the song I was playing was the main title theme from uh, the musical soundtrack for the movie Ghostbusters. <laughs> so playing this song and then about halfway through when my fingers go down on the keyboard they are all shifted one position off <laughs> and every finger is one note up higher than where it's supposed to be now had they been eight notes higher you know if i was just one octave higher this would have been fine i would have just been playing and people would say oh, oh he just went up and now he's playing a little higher but no every every finger was off by one and anyone who plays keyboard knows that does not work you, you, the song is unrecognizable when every finger is off by one. And in that moment, I, I, I hear what's happening, and I'm like, that's not right. But I'm like, but what can I do? I can either stop and start over from the beginning and admit to everybody that I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm thinking, no, I did that once in grade six, and it didn't work. It didn't fix the problem. So I just continued. The whole half of the song was played with great timing, rhythm, and, uh, and uh, volume. But completely unrecognizable as music as my finger was off by one and in my mind the only thing i could think was maybe these people aren't familiar with ghostbusters and they'll think that this is how it's supposed to sound oh it was a disaster the most shameful part wasn't even the audience it was looking over at my piano teacher uh, and just seeing her look of horror and shock and disappointment i think Probably the only person having stage fright more than me in that moment was her, as she was realizing, oh no, people are going to know I taught this guy. <laughs> Here's what I want to know. What did your parents say to you at the end of this? <laughs> you know, uh, when I think back, my dad wasn't there that day for this, and my mom, I don't think she really understood what the song was supposed to sound like. <laughs> Probably because I didn't practice enough for her to hear it. <laughs> So, yeah, I kind of had to come off and tell her, like, that was terrible. And she seemed to be like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 no, I thought so. <laughs> the the oh, only man. saving grace of that whole thing, the only slightly redeeming thing was there was one kid who must have been about five who at the end of all this, when it's all over and people are kind of mingling, says to me, hey, yeah, that was great. I loved Ghostbusters. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is just a kid who doesn't know what Ghostbusters is and liked the title of my song. Because <laughs> there's no way any anyone who understands music could have enjoyed hearing me play that. Oh, that is absolutely fantastic story. Man, I haven't laughed like that in months. <laughs> that was where I kind of learned, like, you know what? You could go up on stage and you could screw up and, like, you know, the, the worst case scenario can happen and you still live. You know, mm -hmm. like it doesn't kill you. <laughs> it is true. It is true. That's actually a very important lesson. So when you see your, one of the first things we'll point out is that when your kids flub something badly on stage, don't make a huge deal out of it. Yeah. It's actually important for them to just roll with it and realize, hey, it's not a big deal. Right. If they get really fixated on the failures and, you know, I'm, it's going to happen again. I suck. I'm the worst. The deeper that that belief becomes a core belief, the harder it is to undo it later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, after that experience, I still went back and had other piano recitals, and I never had a piano recital that bad again. <laughs> and I even, I even upped further the, uh, the level of preparation I put into it. And I, I, and I think I just a general life lesson that I took from that in general was like, okay, I'm a teenager now. Now it's time to really like pull up my socks and wrap my head around the concept that if you want to succeed at anything, you have to put lots of practice and lots of work. And the worse you are at that thing, the more practice and work you need to put into that thing. Mm, mm, absolutely. So I think that is actually one of the core things is that it, when we see someone perform on the stage in anything, all you're seeing is the culmination of all the training, right? And practice. That's right. Right? That's the tip of the iceberg. And if they flub a note or if their brain cannot remember the music and only their fingertips can, that's a reflection of lack of training, right? Yeah. Lack of practice. And so these things do get exposed, sometimes in ways that are really glaringly <laughs> obvious, <laughs> right? But it is an important thing for children to realize that, you know, you have to sing the song 20 times or 50 times to be able to do it on stage once, yeah. right? And, and sometimes that is the solution that if we, you know, we're not ready to be on stage, it means we didn't practice enough, yeah. right? And that's an easily remedied thing for most children, right? Because you could be like, next time, just practice more, right? The problem does fix itself to some degree. Yeah. Right. I mean, for myself, when I have to speak or do something in front of an audience, you know, you want to have a bit of energy. You want to have a bit of, like, you want your body to release some adrenaline, right? Mm. Uh, like, you're going to give a better performance when you've got adrenaline, you know, pumping your blood a little harder, giving you an energy boost, making your mind, like, uh, a bit more focused and sharp. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if it were possible to take a pill that makes it so that I feel no sort of stage fright, no sort of uh, stage excitement at all, uh, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't want to take that before giving any kind of a presentation. <laughs> uh, it would be so flat, I would suck. <laughs> uh, well, that is also because the things that you're performing at, you know, require, involve trying to get a little bit of energy from the crowd and, you know, you bringing energy to things. There are people who do perform things that are very staid and stoic, right? Like I'm thinking about piano players, for example, right? Some of them do need medication to calm their nerves so that they're really steady during the, the show. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, going up to the piano to play with my fingers shaking <laughs> is very different than going on stage and having something shaking. Um, it just, it does, it messes you up. But, uh, you know, I think in general, though, uh, even for something like piano, I'm sure, you know, a little bit of release of adrenaline does help focus the mind and make people a bit sharp. Uh, mm. But stage fright becomes a problem when, uh, you know, your stress response now actually impedes your performance instead of enhancing it. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole thing for kids uh, and getting them comfortable doing stuff in front of a crowd is setting them up so that they're prepared enough that. Like if they start to have a bit of nervous, they just fall back on, well, all that stuff I practiced and trained, whether it's mm -hmm. saying my speech a thousand times or uh, having practiced the song a thousand times or what, what have you. Right. So let's talk a little bit then about what are some things we do to try to set our kids up or even, you know, other people up, you know, s set up people in our audience up for being on stage and not being as nervous. So we've already touched on the very first one, which is really take care of preparation. Right. So if your kid's going to be giving a performance, then try to work with them on the thing in the background so that they're ready. Right. That's we don't want to expose Ghostbusters on the day true. of. I mean, really, you see this with kids uh, when it comes to having to give a report for school or even when it's something like having to do a, a test at school mm -hmm. is 
when they've been like preparing and practicing for a few days, like, you know, each night mm. or whatnot, uh, mm. when they actually feel confident that like, oh yeah, like I am good at this, uh, then they actually like want to go on stage and they want to go and do these things. Uh, or they they, they want to do whatever it is they've been preparing for. You you see that change in them when they're getting ex- kind of ex- nervous but excited for the day of. Uh, whereas when they're poorly prepared and they already don't feel confident about the test they have to write or whatever, then mm-hmm. that being anxious and nervous can often now sabotage like any hope they had of even being able to half pull it off. Right, right. And and it is true for a lot of us. A lot of us need the preparation to feel like we're ready. Right. So it's a big mind game that you play on yourself. But at some point you say to yourself, you know, I've done this speech a thousand times or, you know, I've recorded, you know, so many podcasts. The next one's not going to be any different. And so the preparation builds confidence for most of us. Yeah. Right. Some people think they can wing it and the preparation, you know, you can skip it, but you really can't, especially as you get to higher and higher levels of stuff. You need to know your stuff in advance of giving a show. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this podcast aside, it helps to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time in university, uh, I had to give a a, a talk uh, mm-hmm. where it was something like there was a paper that we had read, and my job was to now present the paper to the audience um, using PowerPoint. And this is actually back when PowerPoint was something most people weren't using routinely. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is going to be one of the first times I had used PowerPoint. Um, and just because things were so busy and I had a bunch of other tests and other like stuff I was doing for my other courses, that had kept getting pushed to the back burner. And I found myself on campus uh, maybe about an hour and a half before the performance actually freaking out a little bit because I didn't feel prepared. You know, and given so, I, by this point in my life, I'd done so many things on stage in front of a crowd that I never really thought about like being just nervous to actually do it. But here I found myself an hour and a half before being like, oh my gosh, I'm just so unprepared. Uh, mm. I, I, I find myself like feeling anxious to the point of not sure how it's going to affect me being able to get this done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm walking on campus and I ran into two friends from high school who weren't in the same program as me, but were going to the same university. So yeah, I ran into this guy to high school and he's like, hey, Stu, how's it going? I'm talking to this guy. And he's saying like, you know, how's, how are you doing? And I'm saying, oh, well, actually, I got this presentation that I have to give to my class and like I'm getting graded on it and I am prepared. I don't know what I'm going to say. And then he's he thought that I was just like being me, right? So he's like, <laughs> oh man, yeah, only Stuart Harmon, only Stuart Harmon could go and be ready for a presentation with no preparation a half an hour before. And I was like, that's that's not what I meant. <laughs> but just the fact that he had so much confidence in me, right? The fact that he was saying like, oh, yeah, this is, you're going to rock this because, oh, yeah, only Stuart Harmon. I actually started to say to myself, you know what? I'm Stuart Harmon. I've got an hour and a half. I can figure something out because just by virtue of the fact that I am me. <laughs> the, the, takeaway, the takeaway point from that isn't that people should not prepare or that I actually can because I'm Stuart Harmon just pull presentations out of thin air and expect to get a good grade. Uh, but it does just speak to that sort of thing of having confidence. And mm. that's actually something I do impart to my kids to some extent is like, look, you know, sometimes it's too late to do anything else, but you still have to get through this thing. And uh, whether you actually have the skill or not, uh, having the confidence is going to give you a better chance of succeeding than not having confidence. So sometimes you just have to tell yourself, you know, you know what? I am, insert your name here, 
and say, <laughs> and so I know I'm amazing and I'm just going to do this because of who I am. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. It is true. The, actually, it gets... This is what this conversation was leading to is this bigger conversation about self-confidence. Yeah. Like how to get it, how to prevent yourself from losing it once you've had it, or if you've never had it, where to find it, right? And it's an interesting thing because if you had run into your old piano teacher that day before <laughs> your performance, it would have been a totally different thing. It would have been, you're Stuart Harmon, you're in trouble. <laughs> That's right. If I told her that story, she'd have been like, typical Stuart Harmon. <laughs> Can't wait to see how you screw this up and embarrass me. <laughs> Actually, to be fair, but that piano teacher was exceedingly supportive. <laughs> I mean, most people wouldn't even have taken me on as a student again after what I had done to her. Must have really needed the money, I think. <laughs> Actually, this woman... I'll tell you her name just because I think she, she actually deserves credit. Her name is Lynn Stacy. Okay. I don't know if any, any listeners in Ottawa, Ottawa, when they hear that state name, Lynn Stacy, they might actually know who she is because she's so active in the community doing so many things. And her, her husband, I think, was, a, was like a city councillor or something that effect uh, back in his heyday. Anyway, she gave us this piano lessons for like $6 a lesson for me and my brother. And I got to say, $6 a lesson, that is very cheap, uh, even by the standards of like the 1990s. Uh, but she just she just loved piano uh, and loved teaching. And when my mom kind of explained that uh, we like she couldn't really afford to put us in with like real teachers for how little like potential we actually had, she was like, "Oh, I'll 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 teach them <laughs> just to keep with, them with, in with it my, with the toddler class. I'll throw them in with the toss." <laughs> right. For six dollars a week, I'll amuse myself by watching these two oafs play piano with a bunch of little kids. So. So let's talk a little bit about the failure situation. Like mm. sometimes we've gone up on stage and we've bombed. Yeah. Have you ever had that type of situation happen with your children? Like how do you get them past that? Uh, let me see. Uh, you know, the problem is as a parent, even when they bomb, my parent eyes don't let me fully see and fully admit how much <laughs> they've, they've completely bombed. But you know, I've had that experience what you described earlier with my kids in more kindergarten preschool where they went on stage when they came off you're telling them, good job, but you're thinking, but what the, uh, good job, but worse job than everybody else up there. <laughs> well, I think at, at that point, as a parent, because they're so young, it's just about getting them on the stage, even for a bit, right? Yeah. What, how, what they actually do is not that relevant to the, in the grand scheme. More, it's more important that they just showed up for the thing. Yeah. Right? So I do think like, you know, as a parent and in those situations in the early years, it's important not to put too much stress on the performance part, yeah. right? If you're, if your kid is learning piano or they're playing a sport, it doesn't really matter if they win or lose at that age. It's right. more just that, you know, that they've done the training and they made a go of it on the stage. I think that's good enough. Yeah. Right? And, and they don't sit down and like glare at the audience for the whole time. Right. But, but I think that's what you're looking for. Probably as the kid gets a little bit older, you can slowly start to nudge them along and say, okay, these are our expectations, right? Like, we want you to be able to sing the song. Sing it at least, you know, you're not going to sing it perfectly because you're going to be a little nervous. Yeah. But, you know, so part of it, I think, is as a parent setting realistic expectations for the children. Historically or culturally, I guess, you know, when it comes to piano and things like that, like many parents are really into it, right? They can't handle any mistake <laughs> from their child, right? Because it exposes them as being bad parents or, you know, neglectful piano, you know, piano training parents or whatever. Yeah. 
But I think it is very important for parents to take a step back and realize what's a realistic expectation for their children and think about the bigger picture, what they're trying to set up their children for later, right? And being very hypercritical of a mistake or a major mistake doesn't help anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. The closest I could think of that for my kids and what they do nowadays is when they've done more like performance in sports. Mm. And they go out to, to play hockey or some of these type of other things mm. where, yeah, they went out and they they might have done something in the game that was like, yeah, you know, you probably cost your, t- your team some points there or maybe cost your mm-hmm. team the game there. And right. how you react to that, I think, is very, very similar. If you want them to keep going out and keep enjoying it and keep like uh, being willing right. to perform. Uh, and, you know, in, in the actual medical context of this, I actually see people coming in with anxiety problems and sometimes they're surprised when I'm telling them what they're describing to me, what their issue is. Uh, and I'm saying, you know, do you play high level sports or do you involved in like high level competition things, you know, triple a hockey or, or whatnot. And often they're like, yeah, yeah, I am actually. And I'm saying to them, you know, statistically speaking, this is actually a risk factor for you to start having uh, anxiety and some of these somatic symptoms. Mm-hmm. And often the people don't even make that connection because they're saying, no, but I play at such a high level. Uh, it's, the, it's the thing I love, right? I, I've been committed to hockey or basketball or whatever my whole life. Uh, so you know, it doesn't make sense that this is something that's giving me anxiety now. Mm-hmm. And that's you're saying, yeah, but uh, you know, when you were at a lower level, it was more for fun. Now, you, now the stakes are so high, so much rides on every game. Um, mm-hmm. And they're starting to realize, yeah, actually... Uh, that's true. And uh, sometimes having this abdominal pain or, or, you know, whatever weird symptom is actually getting them out of having to play the sport or having to get out of the activity, which in a way is a kind of a relief for them. And part of that does have to do with how much pressure, not just they put on themselves, but how much pressure we've put on them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's a good point because we hear about, you know, success stories of athletes right like you know they're they were always the top player growing up they were the top player in junior they were top player in 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 the nhl like it just keeps going going but we don't actually hear that much about the people who struggle with the anxiety of it right yeah because you're putting people into a pressure cooker and dangling things in front of them like you know if you win this you win that and it's all achievement and goal based right yeah and that can be really too much for a lot of people at a certain age, right? right? And we we tend to put that pressure on kids younger and younger these days. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when somebody is actually trying to improve at an activity, then it's fine after a performance to give them some feedback to say, okay, yeah, so here's what we're going to do to mm-hmm. like learn from this so that we're better for next time. But for the most part, when you're talking about kids, if they go up and they perform and then they screw up big time or they totally bomb or they get overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. then uh, more than anything else, you just want to downplay the significance of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the next time it's time to do something, that's when you would start to say, okay, we're preparing for another piano recital or preparing for another speech. So what we're going to do this time is we're going to really prepare. Here's how we're going to avoid having what happened last time happen this time. But the day of afterwards is more the time to just sort of say like, uh, it happens, kid. Let's go get some ice cream or pizza or whatever we were going to do after us as a role. Yeah. It is very important, I think, for children to d- 
develop this core belief that they are confident in everything that they do, right? Or in most of the things that they do, yeah, right? And one of the things that can happen is, actually, it's good that you brought up sports because I did want to talk about that a bit, is that if you're a, a, you know, a competitive athlete and then there's a winner or a loser, yeah. right? If you lose once, twice, three times, it can become a thing where you start to identify yourself as, you know, I'm just a loser, right? I'm not good enough to win, yeah. right? And that kind of mentality, once you develop it, again, if it becomes a core belief of yours, becomes really hard to shake, yeah. right? Like it, it'll start to carry over to other aspects of your life. So as a parent, you don't really want your children going down that road of thinking that way. But some people just do think that way yeah. inherently. So it can be a very tricky thing to work through. I had an example of this. A couple of years ago, I was coaching basketball and the kids were in grade six, seven, and eight. Okay. Right? So we... We, that one year, we got to the championship game of the tournament, and we lost. It was a close game. They come back to the school, and then their teachers are like, so how did you guys do? How would you guys do? And to a man, like for two weeks after the tournament had ended, they just kept telling the teacher, the referee stole it from us. The referee called so many, the referee called so many fouls against us and not on the other team that they cheated us. Yeah. We deserve to win. And the teacher was, you know, trying to be realistic and saying, you know what? The referee did not steal the game from you. <laughs> right. Like, you know, sometimes you lose. Right. Yeah. But the kids just kept saying that. And then, the t the, and then I ran into the teacher, like the teacher, I think she taught grade six or seven. I ran into her and she's like, yeah, they, they're just obsessed with the officiating. Like they can't handle that the official, they keep insisting that the official took the game from them. And I thought about it and I said, you know, that's actually not a bad thing because actually these kids, they believe they were better than the other team and they believe that they should have won. Yeah. And the fact that this third party took it from them is actually fairly easy to deal with. You know, <laughs> as a coach for next season, we just say, you know, forget about the referees. We got to play even better, right? Yeah. But if they actually took it to heart and said, you know, we, we're just not good, you know, we're not as good at basketball as the next team, then that is a much, much harder to deal with, right? Yeah. And so we ended up winning the championship the year after because <laughs> these guys were just cocky son of a guns, <laughs> right? But sometimes you need that, right? So as a coach, you always don't, you don't want to take that away from your players if they're inherently already have that. Yeah. And you need to find ways to fuel them with that self-belief if they don't have it, right? Which is where, you know, a, you know, a lot of training comes in, right? Yeah. Setting up real expectations, you know, goals. And if they meet smaller goals, setting higher goals and trying to push them along that ladder. Yeah. It's funny because in medicine is where you get to see uh, uh, a lot of this people having arrogance, right? mm -hmm. people having belief that anything goes wrong, it's never their fault, uh, mm -hmm. which are actually annoying, frustrating personality traits to see in another person when you see that. Uh, yes. And yet here are people with those personality traits who've, who that probably is part of what has helped them to be successful. It's, it's absolutely part of what makes them successful because the flip side is there's also the person who's overanalyzing everything and, you know, oh, yeah, I did that. I'm not that good. And actually, you will start to see these people, too, and they will struggle, yeah. right? They'll start to struggle in a slightly different way. And it's almost better to have the blinders on and just be like, I'm going to get stuff done, right? Yeah. I always, I always go back to the example of, like, Michael Jordan, probably because everyone knows him. But this was a dude that just thought he was the best and he would shove that down everyone else's throat, right? Yeah. He didn't sit there thinking about, you know, how it made him feel or how others around him <laughs> felt about it, right? He just had so much belief in himself yeah. and that the what he was doing was the right way that it just infected everyone else around him, right? And then we all started to believe it. And he, it, these things 
can take on a momentum of their own, right? They become like a self-fulfilling thing with this, this self-confidence thing. So once you have it, you can double it and triple it and quadruple it. But yeah. if you don't have it, you're kind of stuck and it's really, really hard to build it. It's true. It's that, that sort of uh, like unwavering self-confidence is what allowed Michael Jordan to beat the Monstars in Space Jam. <laughs> I mean, it's, I wanted to talk a little bit about sports because there was one more story I had. So for the people who know me, I spent a lot of time as an adult figuring out how to get better at playing tennis. Like I played tennis a bit as a kid. And then my parents, at some point, you know, we kind of ran out of funding and time. So by high school, I wasn't playing anymore. Yeah. Right. And I was always kind of resentful of other people I knew who had like the country club memberships or the tennis club memberships year round, especially in Toronto. Right. You need to play indoors to, yeah. to keep at tennis. Right. Because the weather is so cold. So I didn't play much in college. I don't think I played much in medical school. It was in residency that a bunch of people in my program were also in the tennis. So we started playing again. We're like, okay, we got jobs. We got money. We got time. So we got tennis club memberships. We started playing. And for a few years between the finishing school and having children, right in between there, I started playing a lot, right? Yeah. Like I, I had a rule. I was like, I never turn down a tennis challenge. Anyone that wants to play, I'll drive across town and play them, right? <laughs> there was like one year for, for March break, I don't think you really have March breaks as a residence, but I took a week off in March and I played tennis twice a day, every day for that, <laughs> for that period. Right. And at some point I was like, okay, I'm going to enter some tournaments because that's the next logical thing. Like I'm like, okay, I'm okay. I'm decent tennis player. Yeah. Then the next thing is to try to win matches against people, yeah. which became this whole like mind game thing. Because for people who play tennis, you'll realize that you'll realize that tennis is like this giant game of chess yeah right? it's just you versus this other guy hitting this ball back and forth but you have copious amounts of time to think about the previous point in between points it's a, it's a little bit like golf right there are some sports that are more like ice hockey or even soccer where the action is pretty continuous yeah and so the kid or the player is not constantly thinking about what they're doing they're just moving right they're right. reacting but tennis because of all this downtime can really really you know force you to do crazy things okay so i had this problem and, and it didn't become obvious to me until it happened repeatedly is that i would play fine like when i played against my friends right yeah. i'd play fine recreational tennis would keep score it doesn't matter then i sign up for one of these tournaments uh -huh. right and if i played against a player who was obviously better than me like i would look across the net and see wow that guy's really good I would just relax and I'd play pretty well, right? I'd, and I'd go down swinging and, you know, I'd lose, but the guy was already better than me. Yeah. My problem was I'd run into people who I looked at across the net and I said, I'm obviously better than that guy. But yeah. usually they're like 60 years old or 70 years old. <laughs> but I'm looking across the net at, at the silver fox over there <laughs> thinking, I got this. I got, and that sentence, I got this, would always be the first sentence of my complete downfall. Oh, no unraveling. Yeah, like it would be this, because... And, and that's the thing. Tennis clubs are crawling with these, these silver fox dudes, yeah. right? They're just waiting to prey on these <laughs> unsuspecting, like, young dudes who right. think that they're going to beat them with athleticism. But yeah. they've been hanging around the club forever, right? Some of these guys, I think, dye their hair gray. <laughs> yeah, so they block every shot back, right, with no power. Yeah. And then you have to generate all the power. And if you miss one then the next time you have to hit one, your chance of missing that next one goes a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And it just quickly unravels. Yeah. One year I played this tournament and I, 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 I won my first round match because the dude I was playing against sprained his ankle. So now I'm into the second round. And then I saw the draw. I'm like, 
oh, I watched this guy play his first round match. I'm way better than him. I got this. I can, if I win this, I'm going to be in the third round, which had never happened before. And then they're like, okay, you guys are going to play on court one, which this isn't Wimbledon. So court one isn't the court with the bigger stadium. Court one is just the one that's the closest to the clubhouse. Okay. But there's all these people sitting around it in lawn chairs who couldn't care less who wins, right? They're just sitting there hanging out, you know, for the tournament. And I start playing. And I, it, it starts right away. The match hasn't even started. We're just warming up. Like the two guys are standing on opposite sides of the net, just like blocking the ball back and forth. And I'm suddenly like, what's wrong with my volleys? Like, boom, balls in the net, boom, balls in the net. So then I'm like, okay, I got to push it a little bit harder. Now it's flying like over, over, like over the guy's head. And this is, we're just standing at the net trying to like warm up. So the warm up hasn't even finished. I've already lost basically. <laughs> then the match starts. And I start shanking things left and right. It's like absurd. Like I suddenly couldn't hit a forehand, couldn't hit a backhand, game completely unraveled. And at the end of it, I, I lost like 6-1, right? Okay. And I was just like, this is terrible. Like I hate tennis. This always happens to me at tennis. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I had to really sit down and think about it. And was like, I guess it's all this performance anxiety, right? Okay. That suddenly all these shots that normally you could hit with no problem, it's drilled deep in my head that, you know, you know, I should be doing better than this. And the more nervous I get about it, the worse I do. Right. Yeah. And I just could never solve that problem. At some point, you know, I made friends with like a tennis pro or like the club pro. I'm like, what do you do for this? He looks at me. He's like, that's hard to fix, man. That's hard to fix. How <laughs> <Yeah>. did <laughs> like, you want to hear from a professional words of wisdom from someone with experience? Your problem. I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> There's whole realms of psychology devoted to this, right? People go to sign up for like a sports psychologist to try to like unravel why they're getting nervy yeah. at certain times, right? There's there's examples of professional baseball players who suddenly can't throw the ball to first base anymore, right? That their arm develops this weird hitch, right? And every ball goes in the dirt. These things happen and they're really, really hard to fig to get, get over. Yeah. And, that, and we don't even have a good solution for it. I mean, I don't have a good solution for it. At some point, I just gave up on recreational tennis because it irritated me so much. <laughs> well, I think that probably does maybe as we get towards the conclusion, bring up one of the points that we should put in there is just that idea that, you know, uh, if you actually have a child who is getting so anxious with, uh, with anything that they have to perform, uh, whether it be like test writing, which can be a type of performance, or whether it's playing sports in front of an audience or what have you. Uh, if it's so bad, actually, that it's actually bringing anxiety that spills over into the rest of their life or is giving ang anxiety or nervousness that's actually making it impossible for them to function in that activity, then mm. that probably is something that you could see somebody about, you know, see a psychologist about to get help that's beyond what you're going to glean from just listening to a podcast. But for everybody else who's not quite at that level, uh, just recognizing that stage fright is the reason for some of the feelings that you're having uh, mm. is is a first step towards actually preparing for or getting over stage fright. Absolutely, absolutely. I hear my daughter say before something happening at school, like, "Yeah, I'm I'm excited, but I'm nervous. I'm I'm nerve sighted," uh, and I'm <laughs> saying, "Wow, that's incredibly insightful that you actually have these feelings." And you've figured out, yeah, but this is why, this is the reason, this is what's causing them. And you actually get it that, and that is the normal response to what I'm about to do. That's mm -hmm. the first step to being able to say, okay, so then how can I control these feelings enough that it doesn't interfere with me doing that activity? Mm -hmm. I do think it is good for us as parents to put our children into situations where they have to face this so that it's not foreign to them. Yeah. And it, like most things in life, the more times you face it, eventually you get used to it, right? 
And if they do stumble or if even, you know, even for ourselves, we should put ourselves in this situation. And if we stumble or they stumble, then we do it again and we do it again. And eventually you start to figure things out. But avoiding it, you know, and which is the natural reaction most of us have when we're afraid of something is not a great idea. Well, that's, I think, a pretty good place to leave it. I enjoyed this episode. I'm not sure what people learned from this episode, but it was pretty fun. <laughs> Just a couple of arrogant doctors talking about all the times they've screwed up and how it hasn't affected their self-confidence. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, we hope that people learn something from this episode, that if you're facing something that's giving you nerves, you know, whether it's, you know, for yourself or for your children, something like, you know, appearing on a YouTube video or recording a podcast, just try it out. Do these things and practice it. Do them more times. Eventually, you will get better at them, right? We all start somewhere. And at the end of the day, even if they screw up, having a nice supportive environment for them to mm -hmm. fall back on will also protect that confidence and hopefully give them easier time with stage performance Absolutely. in the future. Well, have a good week, everybody. <laughs> See you next time.